Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarosh Zaiwala. Sarosh is the founder and senior partner of Zaiwala & Co., an international arbitration and litigation firm founded in 1982. Having advised the Dalai Lama and the former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and instructed a young Tony Blair, Sarosh's career spans over 45 years and more than 1,200 arbitrations that include working with the Saddam Hussein's regime and the high-profile Supreme Court against the UK government. Wow, a very big welcome, Sarosh. Hello. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, before we dive into your prestigious career, we do have a customary icebreaker question on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of one to ten, ten being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Soups in terms of its reality on the scale of one to ten? I think about six. That's quite high, Sarosh. I thought you'd give it a lower score. Quite honestly, I have very vague recollection. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, let's move swiftly on and, and talk yeah. all about you. You grew up in Mumbai. Tell us a bit about your family background and your upbringing. Well, I have, in fact, set out my family background in the book, my memoir, which I launched earlier this year called Honor Bound, uh, which was published by HarperCollins. My father was an English solicitor. And he may well have been the one of the first, if not the first, Indian to qualify as a solicitor in England. Because in those days, there were barristers, Indian barristers, Indians who came to be qualified as a barristers, but not solicitors. So he had a small firm, and I grew up in a family of six. I was number five, five brothers. I was the youngest, and I have a, amongst the brothers, and I have a younger sister who is a consultant in Oxford. Wow. And and so tell us a little bit more about that journey then with the move to the UK and starting your firm, Zaiwala and Co. Because I believe you were the first Indian to start an English firm of solicitors in the city of London, which must be an achievement you're very proud of. That is correct. I was the first one to start in the one square mile commercial and financial district of city of London, solicitors firm started by someone born outside Europe. Wow. And what, what sparked that passion in wanting to do that? I came here to qualify because my father was an English qualified solicitor to keep up the tradition. And then I was I was training in a firm called Stockton and Company, which is a maritime law firm. And I met a, I got friendly with a very eminent arbitrator, Cedric Buckley, a very delightful man who is unfortunately no more. And he invited me for a tea. And he said you he so he was quite impressed. And he said, you must not join a big, large firm, but you must start on your own. And I said, how can I do that? I don't know anybody around. He said, if you join a big city firm, he said, you are good. They'll take you on. But because you are not a local person, the senior partner will take you for lunch once a year and say, good job, old boy. And you feel good. But after 10 years, you will still be there. So he says, start on your own. And he did support me. And he did. Cedric Barclay did support me and encouraged me to start. Well, that's fascinating. and. I mean, you must have had a number of challenges early on in your career. So tell us a bit about some of those challenges you faced and, and how you overcame them, because it's truly inspiring. Well, I, 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 I'm always practical with my feet on the ground. And I realized very soon that the British English community, they were not racist. 
they were classist. And so long as you were honest and straight and were courteous, everything is fine. There was no racism as such, but there was classism because I was not part of the group. I was not part of the old boys club. One of the first challenging cases which I handled was soon after I started, and I was lucky enough to be instructed by the Indian High Commissioner, Syed Mohammed. Now, Syed Mohammed himself was a non-practicing barrister, and he had been Minister for State of Law and Indira Gandhi's regime during the emergency. And he appointed me as the Indian government solicitor. And one of the first cases which I had was a case called La Pintada, where about US dollars, five million was a stake for the Indian government. It was a shipping case, and it was concerning uh, where the compound interest can be paid for late payment of debt. Now, in those years, India was going through a famine, and President Johnson and the US PL480 scheme was donating free, United States was donating free wheat to India, but India had to arrange for ships to pick up the wheat. So every year, there were about 150 to 200 ships being chartered. And every ship had a, had a, had a dispute concerning demarrage, freight, late payment, various things, and it had a London arbitration clause. So the La Pintada, there was, uh, the, the arbitration, arbitrators had made an award against the Indian government to pay compound interest for late payment of demarrage. And there was a judgment of Lord, uh, I think Lord Denning, which said if a, if a debtor pays the debt late, there should be compound interest. And I took a different view that Lord Denning was wrong. And I challenged the award. In those days, I used to handle things on my own. We used to consult counsel very little because to consult counsel in Indian government cases, you require authority from Delhi because of foreign exchange prices. And I instructed counsel from the shipping chambers and they said, oh, there is no chance. Don't be silly. You can't challenge about Denning's decision. Then I met Tony Blair. He was very keen to do shipping work because he was in the labor chamber of uh, Derry Irwin. He said, come and have a tea with me and my senior. So I had a one and a half hour meeting with Tony Blair and Derry Irwin. And I persuaded them and they said, you're right. And on that basis, I got instructions from Indian government to instruct Tony Blair and Derry Irwin for the hearing. Now, in the morning of the hearing, challenging the award, in, uh, those days of a special case, under the Arbitration Act. Tony Blair phoned me up at about 9.30 and he says, Delhi wants you to come at 10, 10 o'clock straight away, but come with the High Commissioner's representative. So I went with the High Commissioner's internal legal advisor and Tony and Delhi told me that there's absolutely no chance, hopeless, and Indian government will spoil its name by taking the points which I have I had argued in my those days affidavit. I told Mr. the High Commissioner's representative, Mrs. Charawala, that no, ignore counsel's advice, we're going to go ahead. We have a fair chance. It came up before Mr. Justice Totten was very well prepared. He asked Derry and Tony questions, and they were totally unprepared. And then Martin Mobik was the counsel on the other side. The judge heard Martin Mobik, who is now the chairman of the an inquiry just now going on concerning the clearing. And Mr. Justice Totten remitted the award back to the arbitrator for reconsideration. The arbitrator was Bruce Harris. And this is interesting. He went back before the arbitrator, and I appeared myself again before the arbitrator. And the arbitrator confirmed the same, but he put a postscript that he's doing it with more enthusiasm. It came back before Mr. Justice Stoughton. None of the counsel in those days, I did not have permission to appear in the commercial. I did not have the ability to appear in the commercial court because solicitors were not allowed. So again, I tried to instruct barristers, and they all said, Sorry, Sarosh, we can't take this case on. It is hopeless. So I instructed an a lawyer, a matrimonial lawyer called Ellis Meyer, who had practiced in Calcutta. He was a Jewish, quite an old man. And he said, my boy, I'll argue whatever you want. So it came back before Mr. Justice Thornton, and he 
gave us a leave to go straight to the House of Lords to test whether Lord Benning was right or wrong. We went to the House of Lords, and Nicholas Phillips QC, who became, later became the President of the Supreme Court and a Court of Appeal judge, and we won 5 nil. And the case was called President of India versus Lapin Tudor. So this was the first big win, and that gave me a tremendous encouragement. It was also the first commercial win for an Indian case in the House of Lords. And then thereafter, once you are in the news, the work starts coming in. There are a lot of cases for, I was very lucky to have Indian High Commission as a client, and, and we won a lot of arbitration taking a different points. Another interesting case, if I may say so, and that is very interesting, involved a shipping dispute concerning what is meant by entry at customs in a charter party. Now, in India, there are two entries, prior entry and final entry. Final entry was given after the customs had checked and the cargo could be discharged. A lot of money was at stake in that because there was always congestion at the Indian ports, about 10 or $15 million altogether. And the clients had taken a view that in practical terms, until the final entry, the customs clearance given, the time to discharge the cargo should not commence. There were two judgments already against the Indian government on this case that it was a prior entry. Prior entry means entered at customs. What did, what did entered at customs mean? Now, there was an entry at customs given by the agent even before the vessel arrives to this, at the port to discharge. Earlier, Stockton and Company were acted for the Food Corporation of India in those cases. They had adverse judgment against the Food Corporation of India. And Mr. Justice Bingham had said that this point was so bad, which our client was trying to argue, that it should be twisted at birth. I took a different view. I, I thought this is completely the wrong approach to law because the contract was to be performed in India and therefore it would be Indian law which would apply and not the English law, which is the law of the Charter Party contract. In those days, I used to appear myself. So I appeared before the arbitrator, three eminent maritime arbitrators community. I tried to argue this point. As soon as I put forward, the chairman said, Mr. Zaiwala, there are two judgments against you. Look at what Mr. Justice Bingham has said. This point of which you're trying to argue should have been twisted at birth. I said, no, but I have a different approach to it and I want to put it forward. The chairman who remains confidential for the person because he's no longer, he got very upset. And he said, you have no respect for the English judiciary. I'm not going to hear it. Either you stop now, otherwise I'm going to put it. He gave me some sort of a threat. I, I can't remember now exactly. I said, no, sir, I am going to put it forward to you for your consideration. You may decide against me, but I have a right then to go to the court. Now, this upset the chairman so much that he walked out with some abuses thrown against me that I, was, I had no respect for judiciary. I stayed quiet. I was also concerned because I thought, again, they're going to, those days, they used to be, I was quite used to people talking against me and sort of uh, maligning me that I was trying to stir things up and all the things, which is not true at all. And then after, I think, three or four weeks, Michael Dean QC was appointed. I appeared again before the same two arbitrators with a different chairman, Michael Dean QC. I did the same argument. He was aware of what had happened. He explained to me. He said, hey, look, Mrs. Iver, I can see your point. But because there are two judgments against you, you do realize the chances of success are not much. I said, yes, I do. But Michael Dean very fairly set out. I, I, I requested him to set out my, my submissions in his award and let the court consider, consider it. He, can, he did so in a very fair manner. It came up before Mr. Justice Webster when the award was challenged and Mr. Justice Webster said that I was right, and the earlier two judges were wrong. The PNI Club, which is the insurance for all of the ships, uh, legal liability, took another case before called, a, called the Nestor, N-E-S-T-O-R. These are reported cases. 
Again, I appeared before the arbitrators. The arbitrators said that Mr. Justice Bingham, Mr. Justice Lloyd's decision is much more preferable and correct, went against us. Challenge again, it came before Mr. Justice Leggett, who later on became Lord, Lord Justice Leggett, and we won. And Lord Justice Leggett said that I agree with what Food Corporation of India is my client for putting the way the, the issue of law was put forward, not by committee, but by inclination. Because the earlier judgment of Mr. Justice Popster was in our favor. Homan Fennec Villain, a big large shipping firm, appealed to the Court of Appeal, and the appeal came before Lord Justice Bingham. And my, my heart sank, and I said, Lord Justice Bingham has said this was, this was a submission which should have been twisted at birth. It was so bad. But to my great surprise, it was an application for leave to appeal, and Lord Justice Bingham made it an inter-party hearing instead of an ex-party hearing. He heard both sides counsel, and he said in a judgment, in an open court, and having considered a different issue, different way of putting the same issue of law, he is bound to say that his earlier decision was wrong. And so was the decision of Mr. Justice Lloyd. Both of them went to the Supreme Court. Uh, House of Lords was wrong. Now, this was a great surprise, but we were all very happy. But what happened later was even more interesting. Lord Wilberforce, who is supposed to be the judge of the century, a retired judge of the House of Lords, a very eminent judge, phoned me after a week or two after his judgment. He introduced himself and he said, Mr. Zaiwar, is it true that in one of your cases, Lord Justice Bingham said that his earlier decision was wrong? I said, yes, sir, that's correct. Said, Can you send me the transcript of that? So I obtained the transcript and I sent it. And he sent me a letter, a handwritten letter, paying great tribute to Lord Justice Bingham and to me for producing a novel argument. And that letter is in my book in that. And that was one of the greatest moment of satisfaction for me. And it shows how independent the English judiciary is and how fair the judges are. Lord Justice Bingham was prepared to say that his earlier decision was wrong. And that also on a submission from an ordinary solicitor who, was born, who came from India. Brilliant. So many other cases which we have handled. I believe that law is for justice and not justice for law. And one of the greatest mistakes which lots of lawyers make and they have a very traditional approach. When they get a case, they look up law, they look up all, they keep all this thing and try and put legal submissions. But at the end of the day, if one stays calm and to some extent seeks divine help as to what, what does justice require, the answer comes. And the answer is that more often than not a very simple approach to law. And one has to have a clean heart. The most important thing for all lawyers to keep in mind that it is completely untrue that a lawyer can lie. I think the most important thing for a lawyer is to be honest and be honest. And I always say that you have to have a pure, kind and radiant heart. Because once you lie, the divine help is not there. And I do believe in that. Divine help comes from within, not from outside. Most important is to be honest, straight and courteous. And honest not only with your client, but also with the opponent. Don't try and pull a fast one. You might get away once, but in the end, it will not succeed. I'll just give you one example of another high-profile cases. It's a House of Laws case for Lips Maritime, another shipping case. Again, the client had uh, very little prospect of success. It was a construction, but justice was on our client's side. It was about exchange rate. So calculated in dollars, but paid in sterling at the bill of lading rate of exchange. And the, and the sterling had devalued. This is about 15, 20, 25 years ago. And I was still a very young solicitor. And I was fortunate because the Indian government could not have foreign exchange. I used to do cases myself without instructing barristers. And barristers have been great help 
But I also put up my own argument. Before the arbitrators, we lost. And in the in the commercial court, we managed to, like, I can't remember win or lost, we lost. And, and we went to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal judge was so strongly against my submissions. But we got special leave, I think, from Lord Bridge. And in the House of Lords, the two councils, I was represented by Anthony Diamond QC, the President of India, and the ship owner was represented by Tony Gravener QC, who is now Lord Gravener. Now, this is a very interesting story. Tony Diamond opened the appeal because we were the appellant. At the end of the appeal, Lord Mackay, who was the chairman, he was the Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay of Tasman, asked Mr. Diamond, uh, have you finished? He said, yes. But what about Mr. Zaiwala's submissions? And he turned back, looked at me, and said, with greatest of respect to Mr. Zaiwala, I am unable to put it forward because he didn't believe in them. Anyway, we sat down. I was quite upset. I was embarrassed. But there's nothing I could do. So I just sort of grinned and sat down. Then came Tony Grabner's turn to argue, to put submission on behalf of his client. He finished. Lord Brendan asked him, but what about Mr. Zaiwala's submissions? And Tony Grabner, QC, said that Mr. Diamond has, has abandoned the submissions and I have no obligation to respond. And he said, down. at this, Lord Brendan lost his cool. He had a book in front of him. He pumped it on the table and he said, this is the highest court in the land. And we are told what issues of law, what submissions of law to consider and what not to consider. I thought we had lost. The judgment came. We had won only on my submissions. After the judgment, to my great surprise, I, those days I used to have a new summer party, a new Christmas party in my office. And I invited I, my judges and the Lord Chancellor accepted the invitation. First thing he said, I've come to your office. This is this Christmas reception only to see what your office is like. And we were a small, very small office. Now, when I, I have mentioned this case in my book, and as, I'm, as I should do, I sent a copy of the chapter and concerning the event in the House of Lords to Lord Grabiner. And he replied to me, he said, I remember that. And he said, it was a very unpleasant experience. So the, this is how one, one, has, one has to develop the law, by being honest and sincere, not for self-cream, but believing in what you think, always maintaining courtesy and honest. To me, the most important is to have a pure, kind, and radiant heart. And if you do that, there's no better court than English court to practice. Even if the judges are against you, they have a conscience. And this is very, very good. Fantastic. And thanks so much once again, Sarash. I'm just loving hearing all of the history and all of the tales. Um, there are so many cases like that. I know there's so many, and if only and we had more time, I would love to talk a lot more about even the... And I must, I must pay tribute to the English bar, who are also very independent in the English judiciary. Tremendously independent and tremendously honest and conscientious. Perfect. And I just want to ask a couple of final questions before we wrap up, because one of them, I think, was where you had such an important role you might have even halted the uh, second Iraq war where you contacted uh, by Saddam Hussein's regime in 2001. What happened there? For me, this firm Zaiwala and company for many years was a one-man show. I had the full team, but I was the one doing most of the work and, and, and uh, doing most of the, the critical work. I often travel abroad as a part of marketing. And I wanted to visit Baghdad. I knew there was a problem. And I met the local ambassador, who was by that time not an ambassador, but a representative of Saddam Hussein's regime. And he was delighted. He said, yes, of course. 
I had arranged a trip for you. So he arranged a trip for me. And I said, I would like to meet the minister and everybody. I had no other goal except to do marketing for a firm. That was the, that's the honest answer. And he arranged a trip for me, but I couldn't go because that time I was in the midst of an arbitration for China. And you, at that time, you were acting for the People's Republic of China, CNPC, China National Control Corporation, in a very big arbitration. So I couldn't go. But he rearranged. Now, when I went there, I met the minister the first, first time. I just met them fine. And I got instructions from the Rashid Bank, was the city bank, which is another case which was heard after the Iraqi invasion. And he lost its report of judgment. Rashid Bank was his city bank, which was about the LC non-payment, something like that. And there, suddenly I was, I met, I, I was met with a representative of the high office, as they called it, the Saddam Hussein's representative. And he said they wanted to consult me on taking Britain and United States to the International Court of Justice for the no-fly zone over Iraq, which they considered unlawful as it was considered to be beyond the Security Council's resolution after the war was over. So they discussed with me, and I said, yes, uh, I'll have to consider it. But they were not convinced that they will get justice. So they wanted to know what is whether the International Court of Justice judgment can be enforced. And I said, I don't think the United States is a signatory, and you will find it difficult to enforce it. Britain, of course, is different because they will respect it. But And then I said, why don't you sue in English code? And he's quite surprised. How can you sue? I said, my, I don't know. I said, I'd have to consider it further, but my first reaction is bring the same proceedings of unlawfulness by way of a judicial review of some procedure against the UK government and then seek to join the United States government. So they listened to me, no response. And obviously they had other solicitors, large firms consulting, no response. So the second time I went back, nothing happened. Third time, suddenly about three months later, I got an urgent call from the same ambassador or the former ambassador and they said they want to see you very urgently. So I thought... Let me go. It might be that we get this work to start the proceedings in England. So they were also looking for new quality work, like any solicitor's firm. So I went down there, and I found that uh, it was a completely different culture. Uh, they arranged to take me on a sightseeing trip. I went to the, the, the mosque and various other things. I'm not a Muslim, but I still I went to various sites and all the things. And I had a meeting. And what they really wanted me to do, because they had, I might have mentioned that Tony Blair had worked for me in the La Pintana case years ago, and I knew him quite well, which is true. I still know him quite well, and I, I was able to contact him. Even today, when I write to him, he replies, replies to me because we'd worked together. So th then I realized that what they were trying to do is to pass a message to Tony Blair, if I could pass a message to Tony Blair, that Iraq wants to avoid the war. I believe they were very genuine and sincere. They said, look, we know the war is coming. They accepted, although they didn't settle me directly, that they had no chance of success. And they said, if we don't have weapons of mass destruction, he said, please pass the message to Tony Blair. Please pass this message to Tony Blair. We are prepared to negotiate uh, with Britain directly and with the United States through Britain. And everything is on the table. And which I meant by everything on the table, I had understood that he would also, Saddam Hussein, would, be, would abdicate and disappear somewhere in an island or something or the other. And I said, but how will Tony Blair... Uh, recognize that I have your authority. And there was somebody from the Iraqi Foreign Office, and they said, we will send a signal in the usual way the foreign one foreign office sends to another country's foreign office that you had the authority. But please pass this message. We want to resolve this issue. We want to start negotiations. Now, when I came back, I had to find a way of contacting Tony Blair. I can't just write to him and I said, I met Salam Hussein's representative in, in Baghdad. And they were very, very anxious. 
So I managed to be invited to the Labour Party conference. When Tony Blair walked in, I immediately walked in first and he was very happy, Sherry and Tony both. And I said, Tony, I want to take talk to you. So we went in the corner. I told him exactly what I had been told. I said, they really want to sort this matter out and settle this matter. And I've been asked to stress that everything is on the table. Iraq wants to negotiate with Britain directly and with United States directly. And also to send a message that you to remind you that he is going to, his regime is going to, is going to meet the Secretary General of the United Nations or something like that. Tony listened to me as all he does. He said, yes, fine. Yes. He said, send me a note. So I sent him a note and a reply came back a week later, which I still have it. The prime minister thanks you, but he's not interested. And, and you'll get a note from the defense minister. He named it. And three weeks later, I got from the Secretary of State for Defense a note, a general note of British policy on Iraq. And that was the end of the matter. And it is one of my regrets that I did not pursue it more vigorously. Because then I just told Iraq that, look, it's end, nothing can be done. Now, today, after that, one million people have died on both sides of name. And the war could well have been avoided. Uh, but it's not for me to make any comments to that. No, of course. But thank you so much again for shedding light on that. And thank you so much, Sarosh, for joining us. It's been a real privilege talking to you today. Um, you have so many fantastic stories. Listeners can, of course, head to your new book, On a Bound, to, to read lots more. Um, but we've just back, like to... it, it was out of print, but it's back uh, in, in, uh, as a paperback with Amazon. Perfect. And we will we'll send all the relevant links to that with this episode. But for, from us, I would just like to say thank you so much and, and wishing you lots of continued success. But for now, thank you. Very much. Bless. Thank you. Bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Legally Speaking podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want to help support us, remember to leave us a rating and review on Apple iTunes. You can also support the show and gain exclusive benefits, bonus content, and much more by signing up to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Legally Speaking Podcast. Thanks for listening.